Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist and now a health coach based in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. I started this podcast in 2020 to help you live a better life. And today I'm doing that by talking to a functional medicine doc who isn't afraid to tell it like it is. Dr. Jay Wrigley is the hormone diet doc on social media, but his opinions don't stop at weight loss and the use of berberine. You'll get to meet him right after this. 19 pages. That's right. 19 pages of data is what I got from my Dutch test results. That's the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. I got the test here in Arkansas, but you can get it anywhere you're listening right now because guess what? They can ship it to you. It's compounding at cornerstone.com is the website. And those of you in central Arkansas know about Cornerstone Pharmacy. This is uh, the three-story building at Rodney Parham and Cantrell Road. For those in Arkansas, the rest, it doesn't matter geographically where it is. You can find out what your hormones are doing right now. And I call compounding at cornerstone.com the hormone headquarters of Arkansas, because they have the team there who can help kind of ascertain those 19 pages. And Allison Ingram hit it out of the park when she sat down with me and we went through everything. I found out some things I really needed to know, and I only would have found them through the Dutch test. I will say that the saliva test is a little less expensive if you want to go that route, but Y'all, here's the deal. You get 20% off with Lisa at checkout, no matter where you're listening. Even if you go in in Little Rock, walk up and say, I'm buying these tests. Lisa at checkout, you get 20% off compounding at cornerstone.com. It's important you know where your food is sourced from. I know with certainty that Ralston Family Farms and what they do on their farms, it's regenerative farming, ding, ding, ding. It's a non-GMO product, ding, ding, ding. Also, the fact that 10 generations of farming right here in Arkansas, using the water from the Arkansas River. Okay, all the things that are important to us as consumers, that should be important to you too. But the other thing is, as a bonus, they have a great website. That's where I get so many of my recipes for inspiration or not just inspiration. I steal them from them. And the one that I'm going to embark on soon is the spring rice bowl that has the peanut sauce on it. I love the peanut sauce with the peanut butter and the rice wine vinegar. And instead of soy sauce, I use coconut aminos because of what soy does to your thyroid. And that's a whole nother conversation. But my point is you can find so many things on the very website that can sell you the rice that has all those attributes. Uh, the farmers that uh, are, are doing this, it's the Ralston family, and they are here to serve you and sell you the best products. They do that. You can find it in maybe Kroger or Walmart or wherever you shop. And if you can't, you talk to your manager about it, or you can order it online. It's RalstonFamilyFarms.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, the reason my listeners are going to like you, Dr. Wrigley, is that uh, you stir the pot and you stir the pot on social media. And that's where I saw you was um, on your Twitter. And you don't have any problems telling it like it is. Did you ever think, when did you go to medical school? Let me ask you that. What year? 1989 through 93. 
Did you ever think we would be in a situation almost 35 years later that you are having a pushback from the very people who taught you what you thought was taking care of patients and we now know was teaching you how to medicate patients? But did you ever right. think you would have this pushback in your life? Or were you always the doctor who said, no, wait a minute, I don't think that's right? Yeah, I kind of both. Um, I always kind of thought outside the box. So there was a little bit of me that was going to be always kind of controversial, I guess. The other side of the question is the, um, the pushback. The pushback is, is very interesting in the fact that I don't understand anymore why it is that, that the conventional model of medicine, especially allopathic medicine holds on to a dysfunctional disease management type of system that really is benefiting nobody except for pharmaceutical companies and uh, you know hospital administration and all of these types of things. There's no wellness or health left in healthcare, and you know that's been the big problem. So yeah, I get a lot of pushback, but it's like it's gotten to the point now where I I just ignore it because it's like. If we're not going to have a conversation about what you can actually do to help someone recover from an illness without drugging symptoms, then I don't really have a lot of time for you. And, you know, I got other things I want to do. So, When do you think the shift was made then? I mean, I've noticed it because of my own health concerns and then because of political leanings in the last maybe five to eight years, but when do you think, because you, you saw the underbelly, when do you think it started changing? What specifically, Lisa, are you asking what well, changed? When, when did we see that, uh, I mean, I know the food pyramid was always a joke, but now it's really, it's such a ha-ha joke that the uh, Tufts University ranking of good foods and as we yeah. know, Honey Nut Cheerios is above the things that I eat, beef and right. eggs every day and butter. So that's been in the last year, but it was like five or eight years ago, maybe I started waking up realizing that doctors would rather medicate me than try to figure out what caused my autoimmune illnesses. Nobody asked me that question. So right. maybe it's when did functional medicine start emerging? I think we're going back now to probably 30, 30 years or so. Oh, oh. I remember when I was in medical school. Um, now, I had a little different slant. I mean, maybe a little bit of different experience because I chose to go to medical school out on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon, and there was a much more of an open-mindedness there. Yep. However, but still, I saw it right off the bat. Even in medical school, I saw that um, there was, you know, they began to develop, and I don't know what when this would have been. This might have been going all the way back to the 40s or 50s, as far as I know. It might have been where the trend, where, where, where we discovered things like uh, penicillin and prednisone and these things that we could then synthesize in a laboratory and they became these glorious um, shutdown symptoms for people who are, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. But what I, what I see and then, the, you know, the development of antibiotics through, sure. you know, fungus and stuff like this. So anyway, somewhere in there, there became a what we call a standard of care practice. And this right. has been the biggest problem is that if you're a doctor um, who gets licensed to practice medicine, 
and you're under some kind of an umbrella of some hospital administration, which most of them are, unless they go out on their own and kind of be renegades. And that's far and few between. Thank it, thankfully, it's happening more and more. But where I was going with that is that if you're under that umbrella, there's a very, there's like a watchdog. And it's like if you break protocol, if you don't prescribe this patient this medicine based on the laboratory tests and the symptoms they're having, then you know, then you're a you're you're a, you're a quack. You're outside of the scope of practice, and we're going to look at taking away your license. And so they form this structure, and you've got to stay and play in their sandbox, or they don't want anything to do with. It. Well, and that fact- probably has I don't know if that has to do with all liability stuff, yeah. and you know, yeah. being. But anyway, I see that. So hasn't California passed a law that if you don't tell the patient about the wonderful benefits of a COVID vaccine, that you could have your license pulled like that? They, they, they have to encourage. And I'm sorry, I said the word. I don't know if the algorithm picks that up, but, uh, yeah. you know, because I could this could all be wiped away clean because we're talking about something that the powers that be don't like, but I thought in California that they could have their license pulled or under review if they don't follow what they said was the correct way to advise people on vaccination options. Yeah, I, I'm not way up on that, especially anything that has to do with California. <laughs> That's not my cup of tea. Right. Um, however, I, I am aware that they were pushing that. I'm, I'm wondering if they retracted any of that now that the whistleblowers and the people have come out with new information about that that would not be a good idea. It's not going to end well for them. But I think you're right on. I think there was a period of time anyway where doctors were uh, mandated almost that you need to be pushing the vaccine for everyone. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. I, I, with all that the whistleblowers have said, so I've always been on the skeptical side anyway. My I was raised by parents who were litigants, litigators, lawyers, who yeah. in the 80s had what were DPT cases. Do you remember that? DPT babies. Sure. So I, I was all, I came from a very, and I'm a journalist, so I came from a very skeptical point of view anyway on all of it. So mine wasn't just because it was 2020 that I was going, I'm not doing that. I've never done it. My kids have had a whatever was had to had to have, you know, the one or two shots I had to have. So I've always felt that way. So now that the whistleblowers have said, you know what, <laughs> there's a guy in a football field that could have had a heart attack a couple of weeks ago if he was vaccinating, you know, or just throwing it out there. Don't even the skeptical side of people who have dug their heels in say, wait a minute, you may be right. Have any of them come over to the side of going, maybe this wasn't a good idea to mandate it for everybody. I think so. I think it's not as it's not as much as we want to see. Yeah. Again, I think that the, they're caught up in um, you know the looking at if there's you know again like we said if they're stepping outside of the box and saying anything controversial, then you know they again they have some type of a watchdog umbrella over them and it could make them really yeah uh, have problems with practicing medicine in the future if they don't keep doing this. But at the same time. Uh, more and more, I think more and more physicians are beginning to wake up and, and have the fortitude and the courage to say, hey, something's not right here. But it goes so deep. It's like it should have been so much longer before 
the the the, huh, the fact that they got away with producing a vaccine that fast and taking it to public market and injecting it in people's bodies when half of the studies were never finished, some were just done on mice. Um, you know, if you look back through history, what it takes and the amount of time that it takes to bring something like, especially a vaccine to the market in an injectable form, you know, those took 20, 30 years sometimes. We we pushed this thing through in six months, it seems like. And, um, you know, it's it's, it's sad. And, and, And there is no doubt that it's been harmful to a lot of people. And, and again, I think it's lagging. It should be moving much quicker that doctors need to be catching on to the increase in myocarditis and all of these, you know, these sudden death things or whatnot. Um, but, you know, what? again, I, you know, it, you can't help. If you jump down that rabbit hole, you're going to find you're going to find it never ends. I mean, you're going to find that how much political this is and how much. Um, world economic stuff this is, and it's so much bigger than just what we would call healthcare. Right. And it makes you, it's kind of scary because it makes you realize that whoever's pulling the strings behind the curtain here have a whole other agenda than um, what's best for your health. Absolutely. You know, when we stop talking about, or never really got the conversation going, but when we start, stop talking about things like natural immunity, and said that that's, you know, we don't even want to go down that. We don't even want to look at that because um, it's more important for to get the vaccination. Why would that be? It would be much more important to let people build some kind of herd immunity to this virus and then stop it in its tracks that way. But they don't never. Nobody really wanted to have that conversation. No, I questioned it in the beginning. I was an early uh, COVID patient. Um, May, June of 2020. It really hadn't been in Arkansas very long. My husband and I got it. It was, it was a really bad sinus infection for me. I know it's different for everybody, but I'm in good health. My weight's good. I have no metabolic risks. Okay. So that's one thing. I had a really bad headache. Like I had a headache that I've never forgotten, you know, but whatever, I moved on. So that there was no vaccine. And so when the vaccine was first introduced, I remember, so maybe my pharmacist said, hey, this is available. Do you want it? And I, before it became political, I said, oh, it's kind of like if you had chicken pox, you wouldn't then take the varicella. You wouldn't take the injection for that. I mean, it because that's a lifelong immunity. And I remember saying that. I think I might have said it on social media. And, you know, it's a wonder my house wasn't torched during all that. And and because I thought, well, wouldn't it? I, I care. I had the antibody still because I just had it maybe six months later. And I was thinking, surely I had it. But that conversation, as we know, you got struck from social media. It got pushed aside. You couldn't, your Twitter account was suspended because you said something that I thought we all knew. Yeah. Yeah. And you said earlier, I mean, it's a follow the money trail. I mean, obviously a lot of people got very wealthy. I'm all for capitalism. I think it's great, but I'm not going to play in your games. (laughs) Same thing with You know, when people would say, well, are you going to wear a mask here? I go, no, but you can. I don't care what you do with your body. Don't tell me what to do with mine. So that is one thing. But um, following your social media um, on Twitter, you have some great perspectives on things. And we're recording this in 
the about the second week of January when it in this tweet you just reposted it retweeted it about the children struggling with obesity should be evaluated. I'm sorry, I'm laughing and treated early and aggressively, including medications for kids as young as 12 and surgery. They're Mm -hmm. talking, they're pushing bariatric surgery at 13. Now, if people can't follow the money on that, because people get really rich with these bariatric facilities and the drugs, the the peptides, semaglutide and all these things or whatever else that they would give a child. Um, So what what was what was your first thought when you saw that this this edict had been issued? Did you think, well, they've lost their mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought that maybe that's where you were going with the question. I was like, just realizing how numb, in a sense, that I guess even I've become because it was horrifying and yet I was not shocked. I mean, it, <laughs> that's it's bad. just the, you know, yeah. it's just like, this is disastrous and atrocity that we talk about heavily medicating a 12 year old and doing bariatric surgery on 13 year old. And yet there was, after what we've all seen in the last four years about these things, I'm like, not shocker, not really a shocker. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody wants to talk about the true stuff about even with the COVID stuff, you know, we were talking about earlier, it's that, you know, if, if people can't wake up to the realization that the people that are most susceptible for all of these things are the people who are metabolically unhealthy. And we're putting like really zero effort, again, from the allopathic side of healthcare into what it is that sets people up for, you know, heart attacks, Alzheimer's. You know, you can go down the list of any disease that really starts with inflammation. Um, and trace it back to a metabolic problem that would you know that goes back to a change in the ingredients and the eating habits, and nobody's spending any you know, much time. You know, doctors like myself and you know you and um, you know some others are out there screaming about it. Screaming, yes, but um, <clears throat> not enough of us yet. Yeah, well, what I think it's a groundswell, you know. The, my when I was on the radio, my co-host always said, "Nothing draws a crowd like a crowd, and nothing draws laughter like laughter." So, meaning nothing draws this type of compassion, but other people and people start coming our way, saying, "Well, it does make sense." But what happens is, um, you and I become fat shamers. Wait, what? Right. You know, I, I'm it, it. It's the whole. Um, Lizzo philosophy. Lizzo is morbidly obese, and she says, "I'm very healthy." No, you're not. You're you have insulin resistance, and insulin resistance causes type two diabetes, cancer, and dementia that we know of. Well, I mean, yeah. Doctor Bickman has a whole list of things in his book why we get sick of the other things, but let's say just the headlines. But no, then I turn into a fat shamer because I, I don't think it's a good representation. I watched the the this is the day after the national. Um, college football playoffs. And then uh, one of the ads was three different people were exercising. One was a guy and he was sweating and one was a slim girl. And then one was an obese woman doing yoga. And my husband looked at me and went, wait, what? And I said, it's, and I understand body inclusivity. I mean, we're including everybody, but her body is at risk. 
do you fear that you can't even say that anymore? Because, you know, you are the hormone diet doctor and I know you help people lose weight. No, that's a great question. I, I think fortunately, I don't really think about it because I know for myself, it might have something to do with I'm a triple Sagittarius, but I have no filter. I mean, I'm not really going to be all that. Um, I'm going to tell you like it is. And if you're fat, you're fat and not, not as shaming or ridiculing. It's to say that you, first of all, to try to build, you know, to tell them that it, it doesn't have to be this way. You got to give people hope and inspiration first and say, listen, yeah. you know, it does not have to be this way, but there's a set of rules that we would need to change in order to get your body to stop burning sugar and start burning fat for fuel and all this kind of stuff. But at the heart of the matter, you are a major health risk to yourself mm-hmm. because you're carrying an additional 150 pounds on your body, which really just represents that you're an inflamed mess inside right so this has nothing to do with shaming you this has something to do with there's an opportunity for you to shift this and i don't support i mean i'll support anybody in whatever they want to do but i really don't believe the person who tells me that i just i'm I'm comfortable with this and i want to stay this way right and then i want to be rewarded for Mm -hmm. staying this way and i want to be celebrated for staying this way i don't think that's doing anybody any good so um yeah i don't you know but i I get what you're saying it just doesn't come up a lot for me because i just don't want to play that game of trying to tiptoe around these issues no let's get them out there and talk about them and sometimes you know, we all need to be like, you know, addressing that way of, hey, you need to wake up. When did you make the switch to functional medicine? Um, I would say probably well, it, <laughs> the journey. So I did my residency in Boulder, Colorado. So I, I mean, I was in these places where there was already open-minded to right. all kinds of holistic natural medicine. So I always wanted to incorporate a little bit of all of it. I had spent mm-hmm. some time traveling in Southeast Asia and got a, um, you know, had a real interest in their approach to healthcare over there. You know, using botanicals, acupuncture, yeah. and these kind of things. And so I wanted a blend of both Western. Eastern, holistic. So I was already always doing a little bit of that, but the functional medicine training and all that kind of stuff happened probably 15, 16 years ago. Um, But my real, you know, the real hit for me came down what's going on about hmm, eight years ago, I want to say. I had let myself just, you know, completely go and uh you know thought i was doing you know what i you know eating a bunch of whole grains and mm-hmm. you know staying away from fats for the most part and keeping my diet closer to vegetarianism than the other way and a lot of stress went through a divorce all this kind of stuff and the next you know woke up one day um and i was about a hundred pounds overweight and i was like 
Wow. Okay. Now, I, at this point, I had already kind of specialized in, because what was most interesting to me was hormonal health, mainly around uh, female hormonal chemistry and helping them through menopause and PCOS and thyroid disorders and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I, um, I remember it was like very quick. It was almost like one day I woke up and I said, I need to understand based on what I already know about hormones, what's going on in my body that's producing just me being able to just massively put on weight anytime I want to, if I look at things like a donut. <laughs> right. So I began to like piece that together and I, you know, I started to um, understand, you know, the insulin resistant model, uh, hyperinsulinemia and what we needed right. to do to, you know, shift us from being glucose burners to fat burners or whatnot. So, where it all started is I started to apply this in my own life, and it was amazing how fast this thing turned around. Like within eight months of starting this, I had lost 95 pounds and felt fantastic. I know. And so, I mean, it was like at that point, it was like then um, I will never do anything else in healthcare that's not centered around Good. you know what I just learned and what I just produced. Yeah. And then that just became kind of the cornerstone of my practice was I'm still going to work with women and hormones, but I'm going to work with them in the context of, you know, also this food relationship that keeps insulin levels low and allows you to burn fat. And I believe that balances your hormones better anyway. Oh, so um, that's kind of where it really started. Um, I love what Dr. Jason Fung says. He says we're hormonally wired to eat and to stop eating. And once I understood that, I've been an intermittent faster now since uh, 2017, and I'm a certified health coach, but my focus is uh, mainly on women because I was the woman who, and after reading some of your material, I think I was really, uh, I'm 60, but I was diagnosed with thyroid Hashimoto's really high, high antibody count when I was 40. And I really think it was a perimenopause thing that you kind of talk about that spawned spawns it and mm -hmm. you know in functional medicine it's the root cause well i didn't know that 20 years ago i just knew that i was very inflamed i was not well i was the most tired my husband said i was more tired than his mother who had stage four cancer yeah. i cannot explain the fatigue i had and i'm extremely energetic so when i'm not energetic something's not right but yeah. you know the tsh kept failing me and that's really something you can't kind of talk about too but do you think that there's a convergence of um, perimenopause and thyroids failing? Do you think that's coincidental or do you 100%. think? 100%. I think it's always been that way. But now I'll add to that after I you know, first answer the big part of that question. So it works like this. Um, and unfortunately, doctors just don't, they don't get this education and they just don't take time to go out and do it themselves because they're busy and they, you know, they're running practices where they're mandated that you need to see 70 people a day, all this kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, is it's not that hard of biochemistry. It's as simple as this. A woman going through per the perimenopause stage, what that means really is that of the two primary female sex hormones, estrogen and progesterone, perimenopause is when the progesterone levels begin to de decline and fairly rapidly because the body doesn't want to support childbearing anymore. Right. But estrogen levels stay the same. 
So what happens is, is as progesterone drops and estrogen stays the same, it creates this gap in the ratio between estrogen and progesterone in favor of what we call estrogen dominance. Mm -hmm. So in a state of estrogen dominance, what happens and how it affects thyroid is that your thyroid glands producing T4, which gets converted into T3, and then that goes plugs in the receptor sites in the cells of your body and tells uh, basically the mitochondria how to respirate themselves and get oxygen in the cell mm -hmm. to burn things and all this kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that estrogen and T3 compete against each other for the binding sites on the cells. And progesterone, what was there, was there to antagonize the buildup of estrogen. Oh, so what happens is, is now estrogen is what is called unopposed because it doesn't have the antagonist there as right. progesterone. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is, is, is it's floating around and it's getting, it's binding up all those receptor sites on the cell. And then your thyroid hormone comes along and it can't get in the cell. So if you do blood work, what you're going to find most part is that thyroid hormones look normal mm -hmm. because you got plenty of it in your bloodstream, just can't get to where it needs to go. So the TSH will often be normal. Um, T4 will usually be normal. T3 sometimes will be a problem because, uh, but most doctors are not testing free T3. Mm -hmm. But anyway, getting back to the story. So what happens is you've got these women who are, you know, I mean, a lot of them are you know, reading enough now that they are just going, I know that I have a thyroid problem. I've got every symptom. My skin's dry. My hair's falling out. I can't sleep at night. Mood swings are crazy. I'm constipated. Mm -hmm. um, on and on and on. And the doctor's saying, oh, but your TSH level's in the reference range, so that's not yes. a problem at all, right? Uh. And it's tragic. Because we've got, you know, half the population of women that I work with are walking around with what we call subclinical hypothyroidism, but no doctor's offering them any, anything for this, right? So then the second part of that that I wanted to touch on about your question was then you add in there all of these endocrine disruptors that are in our environment now, all of the things that are coming from plastics, the PCBs, and, you know, the cosmetics, and... It's, you know, the amount of chemicals that are created day to day just to manufacture the goods that uh, we all probably want, whether it be cell phones or whatever, there's a, there's a byproduct of that. And half of them are endocrine disruptors that just throw off this entire system of your pituitary, thyroid, ovaries, adrenals, testes in men. And we're all a bunch of an endocrine mess. Yeah, it's kind of what's going on. For sure, for sure. Um, I remember, so I was I was 40 when I was diagnosed, but for three years I kept, and I even had vitiligo. And usually with vitiligo, they say you have Hashimoto's, but I couldn't get anyone. I mean, it was just a very difficult time because you really feel like no one's listening and they think you're crazy because they give you antidepressants. They gave me an antidepressant. They said, take yeah. the Wellbutrin because it has a stimulant. It'll give you the energy. Well, I said, well, I'm still constipated and cold. <laughs> I mean, so it's not helping. Um, but with that, I'm wondering now, because I had the heavy periods, I'm wondering, you know, of course, then my, he was my gynecologist then because I was no longer having babies, said, well, we can take care of that with an ablation. I went, no, I don't do procedures. I'm like, I keep my parts. Um, and you bleed like a stuck pig when your thyroid's off and you're at 40. 
I wonder then, so looking back, should I and any woman, and this is not medical advice, my attorney wanted me to tell you people, but if <laughs> no. anyone listening, if they're at that point, should I have started taking the bioidentical progesterone at that point? Would that have kept this at bay? That Would it kept the estrogen at bay and not being so bossy? Well, so I'm trying to think through. Because I didn't start, a, a proje- I was on the radio then getting up at, you know, 3.45 a.m. Yeah. And I was getting up on my, with no progesterone or low progesterone at about 2.45 or 3. And I remember my husband said, well, just an hour early. And I went, look, when you get up that early, you want every hour you can take. So probably mid 40s, I did start, even though I was menstruating, you know, I was I started bioidentical hormone, um, the progesterone, and that's nature <laughs> sedative, so I felt better. But yeah. I was maybe about 47. But about 10 years before that is when I was really going wonky, and then my thyroid, she died on me. As a meat-based eater, I know I can go anytime to David's Burgers and its 10 locations in central Arkansas and get an outstanding meal. I'm telling you, delicious meal, great customer service. They greet you when you come in. You can uh, walk through. I order the hamburger steak. My husband does the double. I do the single because we don't eat bread. And we're getting a lot of that quality protein and fat, which is what makes you feel full. That's one of Lisa Fisher's fasting tips that I have, not just as a faster, but as an eater, you need to know that. And I know at David's Burgers, quality ingredients. In fact, I'm so proud of their quality ingredients that I feel like I have something to do with this. I don't, but they are now selling their beef retail. You can go into David's Burgers and it's 10 locations and you can buy a steak and take it home and put it on your grill. You can go in. I saw a chuck roast. I saw ground beef, all the things that you would want. Even if you're not mainly a meat eater, though, I say, come on over to the dark side. It's delicious. It's so satisfying. But David's Burgers can fill that for you. And again, you're helping the Bubba's family who turns then and helps these charitable organizations because they're an adoptive and foster family. They have six boys at home. So they really support Project Zero and The Call. So great place to dine today tomorrow. They take Sundays off. David's Burgers. Hey friends, just a quick little interruption as you're learning on the Lisa Fisher Said podcast. And that is you can learn more. You can learn more about intermittent fasting if you go to my website, lisafishersaid.com slash academy. I just dropped an online course to take you through kind of A to Z of intermittent fasting. Even if you've done it in the past or you're not really, don't feel like you have your PhD in it, this is a great way to access the knowledge that I've learned because everything I present to you is scientific. That's right. You can start learning about fasting and in 28 days, you can master the course and be on your way to a life free of many of the conditions that we talk about when you're metabolically unfit. Link is in the show notes, but it's lisafishersaid.com slash academy. And my thyroid, she died on me. Okay. Right. So there are two parts that I, that I was, uh, I hesitated because in, <clears throat> if, it, all right, in, in, in my practice, if I don't, if I haven't distinguished by some mechanism that I use that there is a thyroid problem going on here, then the treatment of choice for what you were talking about is absolutely progesterone. We're going to raise your progesterone levels until we shut down the, 
the estrogen's ability to keep this blood flow going on and on. Yes. And I deal with this on a daily basis. Women are having just massive bleeding problems. And again, yes. conventional yes. medicine wants to do an ablation or they just want to do a hysterectomy and let's just take your uterus. The answer to the problem is to elevate the progesterone so that the estrogen stops this bleeding process. Now, the other side of that, though, is if this person already has a thyroid problem or we pick up in some other means other than just looking at straight blood work that there's a thyroid problem, yeah, then you have the option of a lot of times if you treat the thyroid and you put them on some bioidentical thyroid yeah. uh, with a combination of both T4 and T3 mm -hmm. in a natural form, it'll, a lot of times it'll do the same thing. It'll stop the bleeding because... The ovaries yes. in their production of progesterone and the thyroid are synergistic. They love to work together. Progesterone makes the thyroid function better. Thyroid makes the ovaries be able to produce more of its own progesterone. So okay. a lot of times you can go either way and get the same result. A lot of times you need both. Um, I would say that's probably becoming more and more common than you know all the time is I'll put a woman on you know, some just bioidentical natural progesterone cream, but I'll also throw in there just a little bit of natural desiccated thyroid um, and give them a little extra T4 and T3. And that's kind yes. of like a sweet spot and it makes everything great. So. Now there's been some threat and I don't, I'm sure it's something with um, the people we represent who represent us in Congress, but there's been some threat that bioidentical hormones are, uh, on a target right now, or, you know, cause I've seen something that's come around social media. It said, talk to your, you know, representative about keeping bioidentical hormones. Now I know you're outside of the U S right now, but you are still part of the family here. Um, do, do you think there, there's a threat that I might not be able to get this testosterone anymore that keeps me alive and my pellet in my butt that keeps me alive and my progesterone I take it. I mean, I, it, it's a, trifecta around here to keep Lisa Fisher upright, but, and my uh, thyroid hormone, you know, is, doesn't have FDA approval because it was grandfathered in 150 years ago. Do you think those are targets right now? You know, it's, a, it's, we said that's a really tough one because I have heard the same song and dance for 35 to 40 years now. Uh, okay. And okay. So, so again, it looks like, I mean, nothing would surprise me. Because if that were to ever happen, we know where it came from. It's if you're making synthetic equine estradiol from, you know, synthesizing horse urine, whatever, but you've got a patent on it. Yeah, you don't want anybody getting you know, yeah. their hands on bioidentical anything because you're going to be, you're not going to make the money that you want. You can't go out and get into that market because you can't patent anything that's yeah. a natural product. Mm -hmm. So... I can see how that could happen, but I've been hearing about it for so long. Okay. That I, I you know, let's Good. just hope not. Let's just hope not. Oh, well, this platform would fail to continue this, the Lisa Fisher podcast and all of my <laughs> entities. Lisa Fisher Inter said enterprises would be RIP, would die. Um, I've had to work really, really hard to advocate for myself. And so I happen to have, and that's what I guess I want to encourage anyone listening to find a healthcare provider 
who speaks the language you speak and understands you. And I did have to stomp my foot a few times and I had to fire people along the way because 20 years ago I asked for armor, thyroid, and you'd think I was asking for cocaine. I mean, it was easier in this town to get drugs on the street corner than it was for me to get armor because they would try to argue with me on the batch to batch equivalency or whatever. I said, I'm an adult. I'll figure it. And remember there was a minute that you couldn't even get armor or NP, like it wasn't available. And then they tell you, you can't get it. You're going to take Synthroid. And my thing is, it's like taking a Tic Tac. When you take a Synthroid, it's like taking a Tic Tac. I took naps and gained weight, just like when I wasn't on the Tic Tac. So I've really fought for myself. And I've told on my podcast before that I've reversed. My Hashimoto's was ugly. It was my antibodies were like 2,400 and now they're 38. So, and of course my weight's down, my need, I still have to take because my gland is dead, you know, just about all those years that it had attacked itself. Yeah. So I still have to take that, but um, I know that there are results. I guess I'm just telling anyone listening that there is hope. It's not a dead end. You don't have to take Synthroid the rest of your life. You can switch to something else, but you do, you may have to kick your provider in the teeth to, I mean, I, I don't. Well, I mean, again, I think it comes down to we need to educate the providers because they, you know, they just don't know. Like I hear this argument every day for 35 years. Um, You know, the re the problem with armor thyroid or NP or nature thyroid or any of the other Mm -hmm. natural thyroid products is just like you said, we don't, you don't know the exact dosage that you're getting from pill to pill or batch to batch. Um, And I listen to that and I go, so what? Like, we don't know what your thyroid gland does on a 24-hour basis. Sometimes it's producing a whole lot more in the afternoon and in the evenings it, it slows down. I mean, so the whole thyroid function is from hour to hour changing. That's right. So the fact that you didn't get some regulated, very specific doses <laughs> that you took each morning at seven o'clock, so what? Right. You know, I mean, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then Synthroid, I've got a whole, me and Synthroid have a huge fight. I think it's garbage medicine because most of the women that we see in the Western world anyway, their problem is either they can't convert T4 to T3, right. or again, like we said earlier, they can't get T3 into the cell of the body. So to give somebody a synthetic version of just T4, and then they don't get any better because they couldn't convert the T4 to the T3, you know, what, what have you done? What kind of service have you done for this person? Nothing at all. Nothing. So, no. you know, Synthroid, the only places that I would ever see levothyroxine or Synthroid used would be in combination, you're going to have to give this person a little bit of T3. And hopefully you would do that in a natural way. I mean, Cytomel is, again, just the you know the synthetic version of, of a Synthroid, but it's the T3 side of that. Yeah. So loading something up, you know, these people on a synthetic derivative of a hormone that you, you know, you got to use some common sense and go, you don't think the body knows that this is not something that it created? Right. I agree. So, you know, when you're using bioidentical hormones, especially something like natural progesterone, the great thing about that is 
your body recognizes it as the exact same progesterone that your ovaries and a little bit in your adrenal glands makes every single day. There's no confusion there at all. We know exactly what to do with this. It's the exact identical thing that we make. Then you throw something in there that's that they will call progesterone, which is really a progestin, progestin. Mm-hmm. which mimics progesterone. And the body gets all confused. It's like, we never made this. Um, we'll do our best to try to use what parts of it we can for certain things. And then, but you end up creating a lot of times a really big problem. So these yeah. women who are on birth control pills for 30 years or more. In or their fifties. Like a woman was here at my house the other day. She's 52 and still has an IUD. Yeah. I went, who, I, I, do you go to a doctor? I mean, who, who told you that? Who told you yeah. you could do that? And it, I guess it has a synthetic progestin in it, right? Yeah. Most of them. I mean, they, there are so many variations of it now, but okay. typically you're going to find a synthetic progestin wow. in there. I, and again, I didn't I think, know you know, anyone... The thing that's so scary to me about birth control is that most women are not taught, most doctors aren't even taught this, but most women are certainly not taught that the reason that a birth control pill works and that you don't get pregnant is because the whole thing is designed to set your body up to believe that it's pregnant already. So what happens when you take a woman who's sending a chemical message into her body for 30 years every day that I'm pregnant, that cannot be the, you know, the way this was meant to work out at all. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of that. There are some cases where I think birth control probably, you know, makes sense. But I think that there are certainly far better forms of birth control than oral contraception. I think, you know, things like uh, using an IUD would be far better. And oh, okay. Then that's good because I, I kind of shiver on all of it. Um, one of your posts, you talk about, you know, because you are the hormone diet doc, you know, that this is your passion you said, you know, intense exercise, fasting and intermittent fasting, calorie re- calorie restriction. And then you mentioned the berberine, metformin, curcumin. Do, do you think that, so berberine is what we can get over the counter. Metformin is a prescription. Curcumin, yeah. obviously, you can get over the counter. Some people kind of think that's a fountain of youth or has a real key to longevity. What what Do you think all of us should be just taking berberine on a daily basis to mitigate insulin? I would say, I think berberine is very, very special in its ability to do numerous things. Balance blood sugar, stimulate the AMPK pathway, which is going to drive the mitochondria to function. I mean, it does so many great things. I also would say this, I'd rather it be, the way that I use it in clinical practice would be this. When taking somebody who doesn't know much at all about metabolic health and uh, kind of the steering of the dietary eating patterns that I need them to get and start following and dropping the carbohydrate load, getting rid of the seed oils and the grains and the sugars, prioritizing protein, these types of things. It's going to take a minute for them to like build a lifestyle out of that. I think using berberine in that intermittent time until you've got this thing nailed and you don't really need, you, you can do this through diet, exercise, stress reduction, proper sleep, all that kind of stuff. Then you don't need the berberine anymore, but I think it can be extremely useful in the beginnings 
um, to get there quicker. So long term, over and over again for years at a time, I don't, I don't think I would support that at all. Okay. Well, I've um, seen some people some conjecture about it saying, yeah, we're just, we're thinking that it, everyone could benefit from it and, or metformin, the girl, actually she was a nurse practitioner. She said, I really like metformin. I, and there's a part of me that went, Ooh, a prescription. The rest yeah. of your life. <laughs> you know, that's interesting that you brought up that post. Cause when I wrote it, um, I knew that there was going to be a little backlash there. I put metformin in there because I'm not a big fan and I'm not a big fan because usually that is something that's used long-term and I believe that it disrupts your body's ability to absorb vitamin B12. Oh. Um, and it's not a perfect medicine. However, metformin for people who are on their way to being diabetic or insulin, you know, already insulin resistance or whatnot, it shows a really good track record and it's dirt cheap. So using metformin, like, again, you know, like we just talked about berberine, if you needed metformin for a while that while you're learning to eat in a way that can reverse all that problem anyway, then I'm all for it. But to just go, I'll keep doing what I'm doing and just take metformin, that would not be smart in any way. Well, which is how in the beginning people approach their type two diabetes or even type one diabetics would approach their diet was, oh, I'll just type one diabetics will go, I'll just get a hit of insulin. Can I have some cake? You remember? And it was, it was allowed. Now I think I'm hoping the thinking is not for type one diabetics, obviously, but for type twos, let's yeah. try to avoid getting insulin, which we know is a fat storing hormone. Let's not invite it to your party and see what your body can do with what it has. So there's, there's so much about insulin. We, in the beginning, when I first started fasting and diving into Dr. Fung's books and Jen Stevens reads, writes it from a layman's point of view, of course. Um, but I thought, well, insulin is just a big, bad bully and I don't want him. And then the more you read, you have to have him. I mean, it, you have to have it in order to usher the glucose to the cell. So, um, Along my journey, I continue to learn, and that's why I follow um, people like you. Um, now, also, you're talking in the same post. You, so I know about autophagy because that's kind of a buzzword for those of us in the intermittent fasting space. But you talk about, is it mitophagy? Okay. So what is that? Okay, so the difference of the two is, so autophagy would be the broader version of the recycling of old worn out or damaged cells and replaced by new cells. Um, and in order to do that, you have to do a couple of, you know, one of a number of things. You either need to be in a fasted state long enough that your body automatically shifts into this house cleaning mode and clears up all the debris from old cells. Um, and, you know, you can do that through stimulating the AMP. K pathway with berberine or metformin does that sound or whatnot. So then to answer your question, so it's the same mechanism, but mitophagy is strictly the same, the process of what we're talking about with autophagy, but specifically for mitochondria. So, and it really follows the same practice. It's in order to get into that state where you are recycling these damaged mitochondria and replacing them with new, vibrant, healthy mitochondria. You have to do things like either exercise intensely, um, do intermittent fasting at least, maybe even 
once a week or something doing a prolonged 24 hour, maybe even a 36 hour fast, which really would get you into mitophagy and autophagy. So, uh, but it's specifically for the mitochondria. And I put that in there because, um, I, you know, I, I want to be an educator as much as I can to get people to understand specifically how important mitochondria are. I mean, you, you know, and, and I understand that most people don't, you know, they didn't go to medical school, they don't understand this, but um, they should. They should know that inside each cell of your body, you have this little organelle that's called the powerhouse of that cell, and it's where everything from whether or not you're inflamed or uninflamed or able a good fat burner or a poor fat burner or whether you're on the on track for longevity or whether you're shortening your lifespan so many things are regulated by this one tiny little organelle within a cell and if you knew things that you could do to really take care of your mitochondria your overall health in every way would be better off for it. Mm. So that's what, you know, that's what I was going for with that specific tweet. So what are some, so are, is berberine, curcumin, fasting, all those help push us through the, to mitophagy then? It also yeah. benefits autophagy though. Absolutely. Okay. So also, then, you know, things like proper thyroid function right. are going to be hugely important to optimal mitochondria health. Um, yeah. And then the th other things I put in there, like, uh, you know, even, you know, the, it's pretty well known out there. Maybe everybody doesn't know this, but it's pretty well known out there that just simply a slight caloric deficit in your dietary pattern yeah. extends longevity, like 30%. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. So, and, and the reason it's doing that, that it has that benefit to it is because that lack of being just under the threshold of caloric intake that would keep everything just normal. Um, this is activating this AMPK, mitophagy, autophagy, and that's what you want to happen. So you can do it in a number of ways, but um, you, everybody should be practicing a little bit of that. Yeah, it's how our, evolutionarily speaking, it's how our ancestors got here. There were feast and famine. I mean, that that's the whole philosophy of the intermittent fasting yeah. world is that there are periods of feasting and fasting. And there are periods that I eat more than others, but because I listen to my body, then today I probably won't open my window. I'll have a short two hour window, but yesterday I think I had a four, a six hour window. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter. It goes back and forth. Now there's one thing that I'm really pushing against because I, I cannot consume this much, but Dr. Paul Saladino and others in the carnivore space and really other people too say we should be eating one gram of protein, uh, men, maybe one gram per pound and women a little mm -hmm. under one gram per pound. I can't even get to 85 grams and I eat a heavy protein. I'm pretty much meat based, but I get full. I can't. And because my cholecystokinin works so well and my yeah. leptin, it's screaming at me to stop eating. So I couldn't eat anymore. How, how do you think we can then w gain more protein or should we just listen to our bodies and stop when we stop? Yeah, that's a great question. It comes up a lot, but see first, I mean, like 
you're you're a unique you know you're your own unique individual right. um you have to take in consideration of what the goals are if you're trying to drive fat loss for a woman who's 48 to 52 years old protein is got to be the fulcrum the leverage to be able to do that so with these women i feel like you know, certainly you wouldn't want not wouldn't want anybody to feel uncomfortable or feel like they're eating way too much food that that, that suits them. But you know, you might say, I, it, it would be not uncommon for me to prescribe a real high quality protein supplement for a woman that would be made out of hydrolyzed beef protein or something. Oh, I see. You know, yeah. or bone bone broth or yeah. something like that to be able to get that extra protein push. Yeah. That being said. I would always support in a case like you laid out for yourself that you should never try to push that. If you get to the point in your meal where I've had enough of this steak or whatever it is, the idea of actually trying to get more of it in you cannot be beneficial at all. That's what I think. Yeah. So you go with, I think it's best to go with that intuitive eating of that's enough. Right. And maybe I'm not at a stage anymore that I want to lose weight. Maybe that's more because you mentioned weight loss in that, right. that sometimes in weight loss, people push toward um, a certain protein goal. I know my husband was a high school athlete. He still looks like he played in the NFL is very muscular. And he said, he remember, cause we talked about it today. He said, I remember in high school, he was a tight end and that's when tight ends were only about six, two and, you know, yeah. 185, 200 pounds. <laughs> this right. was 35, 40 years ago. Uh, and he said in the gym, cause he's weightlifter, he said they would tell him to try to get to the, the weight they wanted to be right. That, so the protein would be commensurate to that weight. Sure. So for him, maybe it was two ten. He said, I couldn't walk in the front door if I was having 210 grams of protein now at my age, cause he's 60, still real fit, still exercises. And that's why he was, he was the one helping it really giving me the pushback saying, I don't know if you can keep saying that to your clients. Of course he eavesdrops into what I'm telling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he's running the world. But I, I told him, I said, I think you're right. Cause I said, I can't even get to hundred grams, but I do have bone broth every day. And you know what? I was not including that in my protein um, intake and there is protein in, I make my own bone broth. So I probably do. Maybe I'm not getting getting, 85, maybe I'm getting 95 grams, but absolutely. You're getting a good bit of protein from the bone broth, just um, all of the collagen peptides and the amino acids in there. So yeah, it's, it's an individual thing, but I would always go with, you know, stop when you're comfortable. Well, everybody's so different. You look at a Sean Baker or somebody like that. Right, 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 right. Has That's, no problem. It's not because he's trying to get more no, protein. He's no. just got an. He can sit down and eat four pounds of beef at one time, yes. and and doesn't phase him one bit. Right. But you know, he's not trying to eat more of it than he's hungry for. He just eats until he's not hungry anymore. And if you do the same thing, you're probably getting the same benefits. Yeah. Well, it's back to Doctor Fung. You're hormonally wired to eat and to stop eating, and because I. Uh, am an efficient fat burner. And I I know a lot of my clients are, they may not be able to push past the point. uh, They may not get to their weight in protein. And you know what? I think it's fine. Um, Now, one last thing, I just want to wrap it up with this because this is all the chatter because I'm getting a lot of mm, requests for this. And it is about semaglutide. 
in the other weight that was first introduced, obviously indicated for type two diabetes, but, um, those Olympics and things like that. A lot of people in the health space don't like it. I just saw a study that came out last week that said it could increase breast cancer risk, but they were talking about obese women anyway. And obesity is more, has a cancer risk, obviously. So what is your feeling on everybody running to their local healthcare provider and getting the shot every week to make, to bring their weight down. I think it's garbage. Um, I I hate to be that kind of, I mean, it's like what it is, is it's another, doesn't it just fit into the pattern of, it's not about how well the drug works because the drug work doesn't work any better than just about it works for some people. It doesn't work for everybody. It's not a miraculous cure. What it is, is it's a crutch to, you know, allow me to maybe do things that, um, you shouldn't be doing in the first place is the way I think of it. I think that there's, there's a much better drug than, you know, than the ones we're talking about. And that drug is this, that drug is satiation. It is by eating the foods that are not hypoallergenic um, and getting your body to utilize burning fat for fuel and producing ketones will is, you know, will, dampen if not take away most of the appetite for most people if they do it correctly and then that mechanism right there proves to be the best drug you could ever do even though it's not we're not talking about a drug but there's no quicker way to have your body just ravishing body fat than to keep insulin levels low and have your body fat produce ketones for your brain to make it so much sharper and just all the things that you want, right? So, you know, I'd rather go it that way than uh, than to get into some type of um, manip- manipulation of it. Well, because it doesn't permanently attend to your leptin and satiety levels, because once you get off it, then you're, you're hungry gonna, and you're you're not probably, full again. Which... And there's probably, a re- we don't know yet, but there's probably some type of a rebound yeah, that's Once what I, you get off of it, where you yeah. might go from it helps you lose 30 pounds, but you go off of it, the next thing you know, you gain 50 back, you know, and it's like, that's no not working. Really. Yeah, no thanks. Well, it's, I, I think Hollywood was, you know, probably started, the Kardashians probably started the rage, yeah. and then it's right. come across the States. Well, Dr. Wrigley, you have so much information. Thank you so much for being here doing this. I'll send people to your uh, social media. Do you have a book or anything that we need to pump pimp here? We're going to have one for you soon. Okay. I'll, I'll we're definitely in, buy it. Yeah, we're in that right now. And um, so we'll keep you posted about that, but it's not there yet. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you so much for being here. Lisa, I, just, I enjoy it. I hope you have a blessed day and uh, hopefully I'll we'll run into each other soon. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.